This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, King Schools has a new face. And we have a new winner for this year's Collier Trophy. Also, we say goodbye to a Doolittle Raider. The largest airplane in the world really flies. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Have a 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Bruce Holmes. This is somebody that uh, Tom Haynes caught up with. He was in an air mobility conference, and uh, Bruce is a leader in the eVTOL field. Really interesting guy. And we've uh, heard about him before because he is a longtime aviation technical person and has a lot to say about future technology. All right, so we'll get to that a little later. First, let's go uh, to King Schools, a name that, that all of us know well. I think you even used him to train. I did. I, you know, John and Martha King, I, f- I felt like they were my friends, you know, sort of like my cousins or something. But I did use them to train for my private pilot, and they have some news. There's going to be a new face on the air. Yeah, so I think folks who are customers might not know him, but um, for those of us who who get to interact with the Kings behind the scenes and all the great folks at the company, um, Barry Canoodala, who's the CEO, a great guy, really experienced flight instructor, airplane owner, he will be a new face in front of the camera. That is going to be neat. It's sort of a changing of the guard, I guess, a little bit with John and Martha. And, you know, they are really excellent pilots. They, they really do what they say they do. They, they walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And I'm looking forward to what Barry has to say and how he, you know, kind of puts a little of his own spin on the program. I wonder if he'll be as comical as they are. I don't know. You know, he's he's a really smart guy. You know, John and Martha, they got the shtick, right? They, they, got, they play off each other. And so Barry's a solo act. So I... It would be a different a different type of uh, learning, I suppose. Well, I'll never forget from high to low, look out below, and some of the other things that Kings taught me you know, back in the day. So I'll look forward to what Barry has to say, too. Yeah, and uh, we should say, uh, of course, I suppose for them, in some important news, they got a new instrument rating course and some other stuff going on. But uh, but cool, we can't wait to see Barry some more. And you know, one more thing, uh, you and I were talking about this offline, but you know, you can upgrade your programs, uh, your, your video. Like, I've got videotapes from the Kings, and you 
know, folks like me, we could upgrade that and trade them in and get some of the new technology. And as we move ahead and get new ratings, we can just keep on going. Yeah, that's that's very true. And so, yeah, they, they are. You don't have to watch VHS anymore, although I suppose if you still have one kicking around, you can. But, yeah, they you can get it all digitally now. <laughs> hey, speaking of the future, um, the Collier Trophy has been awarded, and it's it's this is a maybe not a really well known program, but a really interesting one. You know, uh, I was at last year's Collier Trophy award presentation, and um, Cirrus won for the Vision Jet. Now, don't forget, Ian, this is the Collier Trophy. This is in all of aviation and aerospace, and it looks like this year it's going to go to the Automatic Ground Collision Avoidance System team for their life-saving technology. That's pretty interesting stuff that we could all use. It is, and it's it's a mouthful. And so I guess to, to just describe a little bit what this thing actually does, it's in military jets, and the idea is if there's some sort of a, um, a medical issue, be it induced from the flying or something else, and, and maybe consciousness is lost, let's say because of G-lock or you know, something similar, the system can actually take over and save the jet and the pilot. That would be super helpful. And, you know, I'm thinking that something like this, well, we do have examples of something like this already in the GA field, don't we? In the in the Cirrus jet, in the Cirrus SR-22T, I'm sorry, don't they have like an easy button that you could use? Yeah, yeah, they've got the easy button. And then, you know, Garmin, which develops all that stuff, they have, and it's, it's so funny you mentioned that, because as, as we were as I was reading about this, I my thought was, okay, that's really cool what this thing does. It, you know, like there's an example in the story that's, I think, uh, really illustrative of what it does. There was an F-16 pilot on a training flight. He lost consciousness during maneuver. The aircraft's headed down towards the ground, 55-degree dive, and the system recovered. And you think, okay, wow, that's pretty amazing. Save the guy's life, right? But look at, like, what Garmin has developed with their, like, hypoxia mode where it senses a depressurization and will automatically descend the aircraft in consideration of terrain and many other factors. I mean, that's really, as far as I'm concerned, it's like that's on the same plane. Exactly. And that's why the the trophy is such a big deal. It really recognizes the best of the best in all of aviation. And I really do think that a lot more of this technology will trickle down to the folks like you and I. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could definitely see that system coming into a GA airplane at some day. So congrats to them. The dinner uh, coming up, so it hasn't officially been awarded, but it has been announced. So uh, yeah, congrats to the winners. I'm moving on to some sad news. Dick Cole, uh, well-known to some folks uh, at AOPA and actually all around aviation, um, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Cole, just passed away recently, 103 years old, and he was the last surviving Doolittle Raider. It's the end of an era, Ian, and I really need to uh, tip my cap not just to all of the Doolittle Raiders and Lieutenant Colonel Richard Cole, who came up here to AOPA a couple years ago, but I want to brag about our AOPA Live folks. Paul Harrop did a very touching, a very moving video on uh, on Dick Cole. I think that folks should uh, take a look when they can. And also, Alyssa Cobb wrote a really nice story that kind of details some of his career. It was such a harrowing mission that these guys went out on. I actually had no idea about that until I read up on him a few years ago. Just It's just an amazing mission. It was a total secret mission in, back in 1941. Yeah, yeah, it was just phenomenal. And, um, you know, it was a big... 
pride point early in the war. And uh, so uh, Dick Hole was the, actually Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot in the B-25. And um, yeah, the last one. And he he was great in later years, really made himself available to the community and, and uh, beyond aviation, really, and was able to kind of celebrate that history a little bit. So he will definitely be missed. Yeah, indeed, indeed. He was 100 years old, Ian, when he came here to AOPA to the uh, National Aviation Community Center, and he signed yeah, books. And, and there were, you know, I got to tell you, there was, I don't know, I don't remember if you were there or not, but it, um, just to remind you, there was a line of people stretching outside of the hangar, you know, waiting for him to sign books. And he was quite the celebrity, I must say. Yeah, yeah, very cool, very cool. So, yeah, he he will be missed, but uh, we're thankful that uh, we got to know him so well because because he did make himself available. All right, some really cool news. Jumping back to the future. Straddle launch, biggest airplane in history by Wingspan, uh, made its first flight last week. Indeed, and now this is the baby of Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, who y'all will recall died back in 2018, but he wanted to get this thing off the ground, Ian, and really use it to launch other technology from the air. So it took off from the Mojave Air and Spaceport on on April 13th. It was just this past weekend as we record this for a two-and-a-half-hour trip. I couldn't believe it. They finally got it off the ground, and what a sight. Yeah, it is an incredible airplane. Just some stats about it. They use six Pratt & Whitney PW4056 engines, so that's, the uh, I guess, the same one on the Boeing 747, so six of those. The wingspan is 385 feet which just blows my mind. That is longer than a football field. I know. And I've been to quite a few football fields. It's longer than, I think, longer including even the end zones. Yes, right, exactly. You include the end zones. And so you can imagine standing at a goalpost, looking at the other goalpost, and it's still even farther than that. It's just amazing. It's, uh, <laughs> it's um, yeah, 65 feet wider than the Spruce Goose. It's 161 feet wider than a 747-8. Wow. 161 feet wider than a 747. That's amazing. Now, it's a twin fuselage design. Now, if I recall, the pilots are in are in one side. Now, what's in the other side? Do you know? Apparently, just a bunch of, like, test equipment and, you know, avionics and whatever, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's empty. So, can you imagine? What a weird feeling flying that thing from so far off center. It's got to be. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I wonder uh, about the landing picture when you're coming into land and, and take off. That's a really good point, Ian, because you'd be so close to the side of the runway, you know, versus, I mean, I'm more familiar with being in the middle of a runway. Yeah, yeah, you go from the total optimum, which is, you know, in the center line of the aircraft in a tandem to way over that. It's got to be the strangest feeling in the world. <laughs> exactly. And now this is, uh, I was just reading in, this device can support multiple launch vehicles that weigh up to a total of 500,000 pounds. Yeah, yeah. So I did the math on that. That is 212 fully loaded Cessna 172s. Can you imagine an airplane that can carry 200 170? It's just, it, it's mind boggling. A half a million pounds this thing can carry. It's just incredible. It is. And um, now, you know, I guess the, the whole point of this is to launch you know, space devices up in space to, so to, to get them out quicker. And, um, and you know, basically you're closer to the edge of, of the atmosphere, right? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know a ton about space launches and rocketry and stuff like that, but it's so funny because I was just reading a couple of weeks ago about somebody, I think, looking for private spaceports around the world. And they were looking in South America because, because of the curvature of the Earth being closer to the equator means that you're actually closer to the edge of space. And so you could they can apparently build rockets in the U.S., ship them down, and launch them from these 
kind of remote ports and actually save money because they're that much closer to the atmosphere and so to the edge of the atmosphere. And so my guess is that the straddle launch, one of the big drivers of this thing, even though it costs 300 million bucks apparently to develop, is that because you're starting at whatever altitude, you know, 50, 100, whatever, 80,000 feet, whatever the thing's going to fly at, you can launch rockets from that altitude and save that much more money by doing it. Well, let's see if that technology continues to take off. I'm a little worried about it only because, uh, you know, Paul Allen passed away, and I'm just hoping they still have the money in the trust to continue that project and to see it through to its total fruition. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be so fun to see. I can't wait to see the first time they actually launch something from it. It's going to be very cool. So, yeah, just a phenomenal airplane. And there's a great picture of it that Stratolaunch shot with a Citation acting as a chase plane. And the Citation looks like <laughs> it's like a thumbnail on the picture. The thing is so small compared to the Stratolaunch. So it's just uh, really cool stuff. And, hey, moving on, uh, we want to talk about Aero, the newest uh, tech that's going on in Europe at Aero Friedrichshafen. And, um, you know, it's really to go from the strata launch to Aero makes sense because the stuff that's going on in Aero is just phenomenal. There was a lot of news at Aero this year over in Germany, Ian, and, you know, our folks were out there bringing it back home. I did notice right off the bat that flight design has decided to, they're back in the game, obviously, and they've they've got three new future designs, a two-person, a four-person uh, there's a lot going on with them and several other names that we have been talking about all year long. Yeah, yeah, Flight Design coming out with some new stuff. That was very cool. You know, Diamond, this DA-50, which they've been working on, I hadn't realized this. Tom Horn, um, he's he's been following it since the beginning, so he knows. I think it's something like 2006 they've been working on this DA-50, but it seems like they finally found the engine. They went through, he listed it. They went through like... Let me see. They started uh, TSIO 550, then went to the Austro AE 300, then a Russian turboprop, then an SMA, then another SMA, then a Lycoming, and now they've apparently settled, we'll see, on the uh, Continental CD 300. And that engine is something that we'll probably hear a lot more about, too, but... I'm glad that they are uh, that they finally settled down on something. Now that Continental 300 engine, now that uses jet fuel and is a 300 horsepower engine. Obviously, so that's where the CD 300 comes from. So now this uh, this airplane, this Diamond aircraft, I believe it's a five seater. Is that right? Yeah, I mean that's how it started. Um, I think that's maybe what they still have in it. Yeah, it's basically meant to be a real beefed up kind of DA40. Um, it's really cool looking. And, uh, and that's neat to hear that there's new technology coming out of Diamond as well, you know, following up a couple of years ago on their twin, which is a very successful design. And, you know, a lot of flight schools do like that, that DA-40 line too. That seems to be a popular setup and it's uh, so modern looking as well. So a lot of the folks who are going to go into aviation as a career might very well, you know, enjoy finding something that feels like that and it looks like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my favorite thing from the show, and, and um, you kind of reminded me of this, the uh, the Horton HX2, which I'd never really even heard of, uh, but it's a flying wing prototype. Yeah, apparently the design goes pretty far back. Um, I was impressed with it, too. This was a really neat, it's like a you know, flying delta wing mm -hmm. looking guy. And it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of neat. The one that they showed here, you know, didn't have a tail. It's basically a fuselage list. A blended wing is, is what we're talking about. And it had a 100 horsepower Rotex 912-912 engine with a pusher propeller. So that that's a, a pretty efficient engine. That Rotex 912 is in a lot of aircraft. 
And, I mean, if you're pushing less aircraft, you would think you'd get more performance out of it. Yeah, and the the numbers they're talking about now, they've only made a few flights with this thing so far, but the numbers they're talking about are pretty incredible. I mean, it's it holds like around 60 gallons, but they're talking at more than 2,000 miles of range at 167 miles an hour. So that that's pretty phenomenal. That is. That's, that's a little bit better range. Well, definitely better speed. Than, definitely way better range and speed than the Mooney M20C that I had. And you're talking about in, you know, versus a 180 horsepower, a 200 horsepower engine, 180 horsepower engine in that Mooney line into something like this 9, 912, the 100 horsepower Rotex 912. I mean, that's going farther, faster on about half as much horsepower. Yeah, and, and, and a lot less fuel burn, obviously. So really incredible. I would... I'd love to see them make hay with that thing, and uh, it's just really neat. You got to search the web for Horton Aircraft HX2 and see a picture of it because it's really, it's just phenomenal. Do you see anything else you liked out of the show? I was very actually impressed with uh, George Buy's company. The you know the formerly the E Flyer Two, which is I mean the E Flyer Two is formerly the Sun Flyer, and he's gone ahead and, and had had orders placed for about three hundred of these electric airplanes. And Ian, you and I have talked about it on the podcast before, but it looks like it's the real deal now. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, depending on how much money they're getting on deposits, it's like, yeah, you can see a, a real financial future there, which which is what they need to get them to the finish line. So they're fine with the Siemens motor, which I think is the right way to go. And uh, yeah, man, I, I am super excited about that. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a swoopy looking airplane. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the, of the Diamond line, to be honest. We just kind of... Has that same fuselage look, and then the and the price on that is uh, the original price was two hundred eighty nine thousand dollars, and I think we're looking at about three hundred fifty now for the four seater. Yeah, something like that. So, but you know, when you consider the the savings and fuel and maintenance and everything else, it's like that's a pretty economical airplane. I saw one other thing I thought was really cool. I wanted to alert folks if they haven't seen it on the website uh, aopa.org to take a look at sylvia horn's article on the new junkers f-13 this is like a retro airplane with a corrugated metal uh, fuselage and wings and it is just a bizarre looking aircraft but it is not cheap it is way more than three hundred and fifty thousand dollars again <laughs> i bet it is i bet um, hey, let's let's stay on this future track. Uh, let's bring on Bruce Holmes, a guy who's really been around for a while and uh, has kind of reinvented himself as a leader in this eVTOL world. And uh, he caught up with Tom Haynes, like we said, at this eVTOL Expo down in Atlanta, and uh, they had a great chat. So, Bruce, we've known each other a long time, and it feels like we're kind of back to the future in some of the things that uh, I've talked to you about years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, anyhow, uh, the things, you, projects you're working on, and here we are talking about eVTOLs today and, and where do we go with urban mobility and that sort of thing. So let's just go back, though, and talk about some of the projects that uh, you were working on back in the 90s. Uh, with NASA and some other folks, uh, Agate and SATs and that sort of thing. Uh, let's go back there. Sure. It's a little bit like when John Belushi said to Dan Aykroyd in Blues Brothers, hey, we're getting the band back together. <laughs> uh, it, it is uh, interesting to reflect on the investments that a 
lot of us made professionally and, and uh, with organizations that we worked for at the time, in my case with uh, NASA. In, beginning in the late 80s and early 90s, we organized an effort that we called the Advanced General Aviation Transport Experiments uh, Alliance. It was a public-private partnership that brought together essentially all of the players in the general aviation industry around the idea that that industry could become uh, more capable of deploying leading-edge technologies in technologically advanced aircraft for more widespread use for transportation among neighborhood and community airports. Mm -hmm. That was the big idea. And at the time, the industry was a bit on its back. Keep in mind, you know, in the uh, late 80s, uh, the industry had declined from building many thousands of aircraft a year to only a few hundred aircraft a year. And so we had an administrator at the time, Dan Golden, in the early 90s, who was uh, smitten, I might say, by the idea that NASA could make a difference in advancing the means by which the industry could move technologies into products and services. And so we started with that premise. And so you were working with a lot of companies that we all know. Uh, Continental Motors, I think, was involved. Cirrus was evolving at the time. And some of the other airframe manufacturers that are now somewhat more mature. Talk about what those projects were and how, and how they evolved. Sure. The companies that we recruited uh, over a few years before the program actually started included the airframe manufacturers, the avionics manufacturers, the material suppliers, many of the other vendors associated with the, you know, you think of an airplane as the end point of a supply chain, a set of supply chains where all of these parts come together ultimately. And we asked the question, you know, what role emerging and advancing technologies could play in their ability to produce uh, a new aircraft that would have more appeal, more safety, more ease of use, more affordability eventually. Um, and, and so we started that process. The, so companies, again, on the aircraft manufacturing side, at the time, Cirrus was a kit manufacturer. And uh, the Klappmeyer brothers uh, came uh, into the conversation with an intrigue about the prospect that um, partnership in focused on pre-competitive technologies could enable them to do uh, achieve their vision for what became the Cirrus series of aircraft at less cost and less time. I mean, that was, that was the idea mm -hmm. behind the public-private partnership. The FAA became involved. Uh, Dan Golden and the administrator at the FAA at the time, Dave Hinson, had a you know, bear hug of sorts about, you know, shouldn't we work together on this? And I had friends in the FAA at the time who helped facilitate the working troop level of the FAA's role in certification, standards, everything from airframe materials process, streamline, you know, for the challenges that we faced were numerous in, in terms, just to pick one example, how could this industry uh, employ advancing materials systems technologies, composite material systems, in a way that didn't cost so much. And, and they, so we had to break it down. Well, what cost? What were the basis of the cost? Couldn't we do something technologically that changed that? The answer was yes, we could. The FAA got on board. Um, the administrator signed a streamlined materials qualification process that exists today at the National Institute for Aviation Research in Wichita. It's called the AGAT process. It's widely used by industry in, in the military and space and, and commercial and general aviation. 
to make it possible to, to use advanced composites in the design and manufacture of aircraft. I mean, that's one example. Another example of a technology that we wanted to focus on was the flight deck. How could we move from what at the time was dominantly, affectionately called the steam gauge six-pack you know, approach mm -hmm. to the design and operation of the flight deck to a, uh, a, a system that would be, the vision was, that would be, uh, would enable people to learn how to fly more quickly and be more safe in more weather conditions uh, than the traditional six-pack aircraft. I would say, you know, we got partway there with glass cockpits. We're not all the way there yet. I like you know, fast-forwarding for a moment to today. Uh, I like the work that the General Aviation Manufacturers is doing toward what's called a simplified vehicle operation concept to, to move beyond what we take for granted as glass in today's glass mm -hmm. cockpits and, and even go further in, in uh, streamlining the, the way that the human interacts with that display system to operate safely in, in uh, envelopes, basically, that, that are increasingly safe in more conditions. Well, let me back up a little bit and say, so when we wanted to undertake a collaboration between public and private partners to move the deployment, the technology deployment capacity forward for the industry, it actually boiled down, it, it's a complex picture, no question. Boil down to three fairly simple deliverables for us to focus on. Uh, it took us a while to define these. The first was industry design guidelines. Work on those together. They're pre-competitive in nature, so they affected everything from crashworthy airplane airframe design, energy-absorbing airframe design practices. Um, the idea that uh, uh, glass uh, cockpits could be uh, fed by a standardized data bus, for example. Uh, the idea that the design standards for lightning protection, for example, could, could be spread across the industry. So we worked on industry design guidelines, the first of the three. We, we, we called that one the G for, for guidelines. The S of the three were standards for systems and architectures that could affect everything from the way we handled moving from traditional wiring systems for federated boxes wired together in the mm -hmm. flight deck to a more standardized system that became the Agate data bus. It's out there alive today. It's an IEEE standard widely used in uh, general and commercial uh, aviation. So standards for systems and architectures. And the third, the, the G, S, and the C, the C were certification methods. And if you had a new technology that didn't have a method of certification, let's develop it. Or if you had a, a new technology that had a certification envelope but didn't have a means of compliance, let's develop those. We did all that together. So uh, the GS and Cs became kind of the heartbeat of, of the alliance. And we worked on those uh, over a period of eight years, from 1993 about to 2000, roughly. And, and we had, over those period of years, uh, about almost 50 cost-sharing industry partners. And almost anybody you can think of in the industry was involved in one way or another. And then we had about another, almost 100 partners that we called associate partners that could participate because we wanted an ecosystem-like outcome. 
this. So we wanted the suppliers, the community at large, AOPA was involved, the EAA was involved. And, and so we wanted kind of the community to be part of cheering on, right, the, the uh, folks doing the heavy lifting and the work. So those deliverables, the GSNCs, became, as I said, the, the focus of the uh, the work of the teams in, in the partnership. And um, along the way, we had a lot of different things we tried. A lot of them worked. Some of them didn't. You know, we, we took a swing at the idea of streamlining uh, flight training curriculum by having an integrated uh, IFR, VFR, you know, certification process. Uh -huh. It's still alive out there in a couple of universities, uh, but it didn't get much traction if for no other reason than it still cost a lot to learn how to fly. Right. So, you know, we, we sit here today saying, well, what are we going to do about that? It's still a challenge. Yeah. There was an aerodynamic component that came about regarding the, uh, the sort of the, the cuffed wings on the Cirruses and the Cessna TTX and, and, and some others. We had uh, what I called a constellation of uh, projects underway. Agate was one of them. Another one was the Stall Spin Research Program mm -hmm. at NASA Langley, where they explored the question of what can be employed as a passive means of making an aircraft resistant to departure for controlled flight. And it led to these cuffed leading edges. One of the premier examples of that, of course, the Cirrus and, and the uh, Cessna series of aircraft, uh, the Piaggio employs the technology, for example. One of the ones that's close to home for me, of course, is the Icon A5, which is an airplane that, that I uh, own and, uh, and fly. And it, it's uh, an airplane that I'm most hesitant to say will not depart controlled flight. Uh, it's just that so far, people haven't found a way to do that. It, it does, as we've always learned in, in the flight test, you know, when you create a, a new way to operate an aircraft, you also create a new way for pilots to get into trouble. So one of the aspects, of course, of, of the way forward in uh, control, um, in loss of control, that has become more apparent is uh, loss of control of energy, right? Which is uh, kind of a new mantra of sorts to uh, for all of us to be looking forward at. So tell me about the Icon. Uh, you, you, you recently got it and you flew it home from California. I did. I picked it up on November 19th. I got up that morning. The wildfires in Northern California and Southern California had filled the San Joaquin Valley with smoke. I didn't know whether I was going to be able to get home or not. I um, rolled out to the end of the runway. The sky was blue overhead. I could see about 10 miles in most directions. And I said, you know, let's give this a try. I can always come back. But it turned out that that was the beginning of a, over a period of seven days, about 28 hours of flying, a, a half a dozen fuel stops in various places, and uh, burned about 122 gallons of fuel to get uh, get my airplane home to Virginia. It was a it was an epic journey, a lot of lessons, uh, no better way to get intimate with your new airplane than and, uh, that kind of an experience, and, and it's just joyful all the way. Yeah. So why an icon? Well, for me, the airplane is an instantiation of all of the years of work I was involved in with my colleagues in industry at NASA. Um, the materials, it's a carbon fiber mm -hmm. airplane, the uh, a dual FADEX system on the engine, they call it EMS. It's also got dual alternators, dual regulators, uh, dual fuel pumps. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a, a technologically advanced airplane in that regard. That, the, that technology came out of some of the work, single lever power control, some of the work mm -hmm. at Agate with NASA and the partners. 
the glass, it has a little bit of glass in it, right? It's got, comes with a Garmin era 796. And then I've got a, an iPad with some apps that I use in various situations. So I feel like I'm flying in a, in a glass cockpit, but then I like to shut all that stuff off every now and then, get it out of the way. Um, the uh, airplane has a whole airplane parachute, which uh, we, at NASA, helped uh, the companies start in that uh, world with some uh, SBIR support back in the early days. The uh, outboard leading edge troop, of course, uh, stall spin came out of the work at NASA Langley. And a few other features that when I'm sitting in the airplane, I feel like I'm sitting in, you know, 40 years of my professional career all in one place. It's kind of cool. It's a pretty unusual experience. Yeah, it's got to be really rewarding from that standpoint. But uh, how do you like flying it? Well, I like it more than I could have imagined, I think, when it all started. I got involved with ICON in the early days uh, of their launch uh, on their uh, advisory committee. And, um, you know, Kirk Hawkins had asked me, Hawkins had asked me if I would uh, provide that sort of insight into things that might matter down the road and able I was able to help them with a few mm-hmm. few things during that period of time and so when and this is part of the rest of the answer to your question when Kirk and Steen explained that they had a vision for an aircraft that would open new markets for consumers in aviation and they described that to me it, it struck a resonant chord with me because I first of all I knew we needed that in, in, in general aviation, we need as much of that as we can get. You know, and the innovation space has opened up uh, a fair amount over the past many years. And so this was an instantiation of an opportunity to stimulate new market. Mm-hmm. And I see that as um, a big part of what's happened. Now, clearly, we need airplanes that are less expensive to operate, and le- less expensive to own in order to realize that fully. But the airplane, at least in its flying characteristics, uh, on the water, off you know, in the air, are the sort of um, element, of, uh, a joy I call it the the ultimate um, form of liberty, human liberty. Right? It's it's the ability to be up there and do kind of go and be not to get too cosmic, but one with the sky. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a, a, a real pleasure in that in that regard. So. I wanted to be part of that, and one of the uh, realizations of that came to me when I had an open house at the uh, uh, Williamsburg Jamestown Airport in uh, Virginia uh, a couple of weekends ago, and we had the airplane on display, you know, in, at a barbecue in the hangar, and the airplane was there with a little poster with all the technology story that I'm in love with, <laughs> but I had the, the, the canopy open, and uh, a couple of youngsters came up, probably 10 and 12 years old, kind uh-huh. of boys with their grandfather and their father who had an airplane and the kids were used to flying. They walked up to the airplane, their eyes were as big as saucers. They said, can we get in? And I said, well, yes, that's why it's here. Oh. So we sat them in there, I lit up the glass and and uh, they sat there for 30, maybe 40 minutes giving each other instruction. It oh, wow. was, it was, <laughs> that's what I wanted to see happen. So yeah. I'm just thrilled to be able to have this airplane to share in that kind of a uh, opportunity. Yeah. So you talk about emerging markets, emerging technology, that sort of thing. So here we are today sitting at an, a UAM, Urban Aerial Mobility Conference, talking about eVTOL and hybrid aircraft and, and this, this mixture of unbelievable types of airframes and different missions and all that sort of thing. It feels very confusing. 
and like the future is pretty unclear when it comes to where do we go from here, what do you think? It's certainly complex <laughs> and is as frothy is probably a pretty good word mm-hmm. as any time in the part of aviation history you and I, Tom, have lived through. Yep. Um, i glad to be around for it. I'm glad to be involved in aspects of it. Mm-hmm. It's clear to all of us, I think, working in the space, in quotes, something is going to happen. The details of it, I think, will be hard to forecast. You know, will emergency service air vehicles come first? Will military air variants of these kinds of electric VTOL aircraft come first? Will regional travel in them come first, or will it be some part of urban like airport shuttle kinds of things? We, you know, many of us live through the uh, description of our understanding about how to get things done. You know, I have a I have a hammer, so every problem's a nail. You know, we saw the New York shuttle, right, with, yeah. with, the, uh, with the aircraft back in the day, the Chinook-like uh, variants. And so we think that there's a big market there. I have a, uh, an involvement in a couple of parts of the, of the industrial advancement that have to do both with connectivity. Uh, in other words, all of these vehicles are going to have to be connected, not just because you want to talk to air traffic. And, and in this case, it won't be talking. It'll be digital communications but also because you want to do uh, vehicle-to-cloud capabilities. Some of the functions we take for granted in the aircraft today uh, in in a traditional FMS-like way of thinking about Mm -hmm. the world, uh, all of that doesn't have to be in the aircraft. It can be in the cloud, and if you have a completely reliable link, uh, some assembly required, batteries not included, (laughs) right? You can have certain functions uh, in the cloud that uh, reduce the cost of, implementation, upgrading, certification, everything, because you only have to do it once, so to speak, and instead of in every single instantiation that you have out there in the air vehicles themselves. Those kinds of advancements uh, are certainly possible, and we're, we're involved in aspects of those. I'm involved with uh, one of the uh, innovators, entrepreneurs, that is producing uh, one of the variants of the electric vertical takeoff and landing machines that you know intends to stand out in that field of 150-some-odd players in the field. And and as some in the industry have pointed out, we're not in quite in competition yet, but we will be pretty soon. It's, it's it, We're at the starting line <laughs> before before the starting line, really, when, when certifications come forth and things like that, that create the launch of, the, of this new industry. So it, it will be confusing for a little while. And I don't know whether that's a couple of years or longer. A lot depends on the successes of the first certification efforts, which I will say, um, those of us who have been around in certification programs for many years are encouraged by the forward-leaning attitude of the FAA in this arena. You know, hats off to them for for getting engaged from the top on down in, in the agency. Good things are happening there. But it feels like if, if anything could be agreed upon, it, it, it particularly from a timeline standpoint, which they're all over the map what people are predicting, but it, it feels like if you could predict anything, it's going to be that package delivery and logistics delivery, that sort of thing, are, are, are going to precede carrying humans in these things. And that if we're successful in that initial phase, that it's going to make the second phase a lot easier. I think, that's, I think there's a lot of truth in that. This is why I made the point earlier about 
you know, what if you could have an emergency services uh, capability for disaster recovery that may not have to even go through the traditional uh, airworthiness certification process in the civilian, although, although the military has their own uh, certification process and mil-spec processes that uh, require diligence uh, in time and investment. Still, uh, there, there are paths to early deployments that don't have to be uh, for public consumption initially, and they may pave the way you know, towards what becomes the ability of the public to uh, move around the, you know, in these kinds of air vehicles over time. All right, Bruce. Well, thanks for taking some time. It's always fun to get with you and, and pick your brain a little bit about what the future might look like. Anytime, Tom. All right, David. So um, good to see some uh, reality coming into the eVTOL world, I think, and uh, good to hear about kind of where we think we're going to be. It sounds like uh, people are starting to come, I think, with some realistic plans into the future. Yeah. And, you know, things are ramping up in the eVTOL world and we hear more and more about it every week uh, and every couple of weeks on the podcast. We do talk about it. So it's good to have someone that knows a lot more about the background, the history and where we're going to go from here. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>